Me and my family likewise want to wish you again a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to you. And I'm um, open up your Bibles, please, to 1 Samuel chapter 20. Uh, the title of the message this morning is True Friendship. And it's going to uh, be sort of a part two to a message I gave in the beginning of December prior to our Advent Christmas messages. And so, uh, True Friendship, we're going to read 1 Samuel chapter 20 together. And so if you could read along in God's Word or on your, um, on your phones or in your Bibles, on your lap, let's read God's Word and, and take it in this morning. This is our Seeing Christ in All of Scripture series, First and Second Samuel. Let's look at 1 Samuel chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. Let's read God's Word. Then David fled from Nioth and Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt and what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, Far from it. You shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do for you. David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit at table with the king. But let me go, that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asks leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. If he says good, it will be well with your servant. But if he is angry, then know that harm is determined by him. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, Far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go into the field. So they both went out into the field. And Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, Behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also. If I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety, may the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love for my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, and he loved him as he loved his own soul. Then Jonathan said to him, Tomorrow is the new moon, and you will be missed, because your seat will be empty. On the third day, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself when the matter was in hand, and remain beside the stone heap, and I will shoot three, hour, three arrows to the side of it, as though I shot at a mark. And behold, I will send the boy, saying, Go find the arrows. If I say to the boy, Look, the arrows are on this side of you, take them, then you are to come, for as the Lord lives, it is safe for you, and there is no danger. But if I say to the youth, Look, the arrows are beyond you, then go, for the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. So David hid himself in the field, and when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. The king sat on his seat, as at other times, on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat opposite, and Abner sat by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Yet Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought something has happened to him. He's not clean. Surely he's not clean. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty, and Saul said to Jonathan his son, Why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? And Jonathan answered Saul, 
David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem, he said, let me go for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now, if I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. He said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month. For he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. In the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David and with him a little boy. And he said to his boy, run and find the arrows that I shoot. And as the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy and said, is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan called after the boy, hurry, be quick. Do not stay. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master. But the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapons to his boy and said to him, Go and carry them into the city. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace. Because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. Again, the title is True Friendship. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray for your blessing on the preaching of your word this morning. Holy Spirit, we pray for your power and your anointing to come and touch our hearts. Protect us from being mere hearers of the word, but not doers of it also, Lord. And I pray that you would mold and shape us this morning, Lord, into those who are true friends to others. God, help us, Lord, to glorify you in our lives. And would you place, Lord, the spirit of of Jonathan on us as a church family so that we would be a great blessing to you and to one another. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I want to read to you a story written by Jesse Owens. It was the summer of 1936, Owen says. The Olympic Games were being held in Berlin because Adolf Hitler insisted his country's athletes were members of a, quote, master race. Nationalistic feelings were at an all-time high. I wasn't too worried about all this. I'd trained and sweated for six years with the Games in mind. While I was going over on the boat, all I could think about was taking home one or two of those gold medals. I particularly had my eye on the running broad jump. The year before, as a sophomore at Ohio State University, I'd set the world record at 8.13 meters. Everyone kind of expected me to win that event hands down. I was in for a surprise. When the time came for the broad jump trials, I was startled to see a tall boy hitting the pit at almost 7.9 meters on his practice leaps. He turned out to be a German named Luz Long. I was told that Hitler had kept him under wraps, evidently hoping to win the jump with him. I guess that if Long won, it would add some support to the Nazis' Aryan superiority theory. After all, I am black. A little hot under the collar about Hitler's ways, I determined to go out there and really show the Fuhrer and his master race who was superior and who wasn't. An angry athlete is an athlete who will make some mistakes, as my coach will tell you. I was no exception. On the first of my three qualifying jumps, I leaped from several centimeters beyond the takeoff board for a foul. On the second jump, I fouled even worse. Did I come 6,000 kilometers for this? I thought bitterly. To foul out of the trials and make a fool of myself? Walking a few yards from the pit, I kicked at the dirt in disgust. And suddenly, I felt a hand on my shoulder. I turned to look into the friendly blue eyes of the tall German broad jumper. He had easily qualified for the finals on his first attempt. He offered me a firm handshake. Jesse Owens, I'm Luz Long. I don't think we've met. He spoke English well, though, with a German twist. Glad to meet you, I said, and then trying to hide my nervousness, I added, how are you? 
I'm fine. The question is, how are you? What do you mean, I asked. Something must be eating you, he he said. You should be able to qualify with your eyes closed. Believe me, I know it, I told him, and it felt good to say that to someone. For the next few minutes, we talked. I didn't tell Luz what was eating me, but he seemed to understand my anger, and he took pains to reassure me. Although he'd been indoctrinated in the Nazi youth movement, he didn't believe in the Aryan supremacy business any more than I did. We laughed over the fact that he really looked the part, though. He had a lean, muscular frame, blue eyes, blonde hair, and a handsome, chiseled face. Finally, seeing that I had calmed down somewhat, he pointed to the takeoff board. Why don't you draw a line a few centimeters in back of the board and make and take your make your takeoff from there, he said. You'll be sure not to foul, and you certainly ought to jump far enough to qualify. What does it matter if you're not first in the trials? Tomorrow is what counts. The tension seemed to ebb out of my body as the truth of what he said hit me. Confidently, I drew a line a full 30 centimeters behind the board and proceeded to jump from there. I qualified. That night, I walked over to Luz's room in the Olympic Village to thank him. If it hadn't been for him, I probably wouldn't be jumping in the finals the following day. We sat in his quarters and talked for two hours about track and field, ourselves, the world situation, a dozen other things. And when I finally got up to leave, we both knew that a real friendship had been formed. Luz would go out to the field the next day, trying to outdo me if he could, but I knew that he wanted me to do my best, even if that meant beating him. As it turned out, Luz broke his own past record. In doing so, he inspired me to deliver a peak performance. I remember that at the instant I landed from my final jump, the one that set the Olympic record of 8.06 meters, he was at my side congratulating me. Despite the fact that Hitler glared at us from the stands not a 100 meters away, Luz shook my hand hard and it wasn't a fake smile with a broken-hearted grip either. You can melt down all the gold medals and cups I've received and they wouldn't come close to outshining the 24-carat friendship I felt for Luz at that moment. He was the epitome of what Pierre de Coubertin, founder of the modern Olympics, must have had in mind when he said the important thing in the Olympic Games is not winning, but taking part. The essential thing in life is not conquering, but fighting well. True friendship can sometimes come from the most unlikely of places. It happened for Jesse Owens in the 1936 Olympics, and it happened also for David when he found a true friend in Saul's son, Jonathan. 1024 B.C. is when David killed Goliath. And from about that time to Jonathan's death in 1010 B.C., 14 years later, these two, David and Jonathan, formed and walked in a bond that should inspire and motivate all of us. We see this friendship begin to be kindled, not in chapter 20 where we first read, but you read of it in 1 Samuel chapter 19, if you turn with me there, where we look at the Lord knitting their souls together. In 19 verse 1, the word says, And Saul spoke to Jonathan his son and to all his servants, that they should kill David. I'm sorry, go to uh, chapter 18. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. And in that moment, Saul really honored and loved and regarded David. Verse 3, Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever God sent him so that Saul set him over the men of war. This section here talks about how the Lord knitted Jonathan's soul to David's immediately after Goliath was slain. David walked into the council of war before Saul for the very first time, before either him nor Abner, the military commander, even knew his name or knew who he was. And here he was, this young warrior, carrying in the head of Goliath himself. What a, what a moment. And I can't help but think that might it have been in that moment that Jonathan 
observed David and felt this kinship with him as a fellow warrior and admired the, the courage of David above all the other Israelite soldiers and also the way that his faith in God was unmatched and might have been inspired by him. And the Spirit of God began to knit his heart and knit his soul to David's. This work of knitting, it means in the Hebrew, bound up with. And it's first seen actually in connection with Jacob's life when it's described that Jacob was bound up with his son John, uh, Benjamin's life. Remember the love that Jacob had for Benjamin was special. And his, there was a knitting that took place. It's, it's speaking to a strong term, a, a strong word. It speaks to a union of one person's life with another in a close, strong bond of affection and true friendship. We see this in verses 2 and 3 when Saul took David and would not let him return to his father's house. And it says, Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. I love that expression. Loved him as his own soul. I'm going to be saying a lot of Bible references. You can write down the ones you want. Write down whatever notes you want. There will be applications laced throughout this. There's so much content to cover. I hope that the Holy Spirit will just, and I know He will, just quicken things to you that will minister comfort and strength and edification to your own soul. But that loving him as his own soul expression isn't first seen there. In 1 Samuel chapter 18, in Deuteronomy 13.6, the Word of God talks about a friend who is as your own soul. And in, in that context, it's actually talking about if your wife or a friend who is as your own soul leads you to go away from the Lord or leads you into error to turn away from God, then you're to be loyal to the Lord. Above all else. But, but there's this concept here of embracing your friend who is as your own soul. And there again, we see Jonathan and David. Jonathan describing David as loving him as his own soul. The, the image that one early church father, Gregory, uses to describe this, as well as some friendships that he enjoyed during his Christian life, is, quote, two bodies with a single spirit. Two bodies with a single spirit. And yes, that, that's achieved with the oneness that is achieved through the covenant of marriage where the two shall become one. But it's also possible for friends, two men, two women, to be so bonded together in friendship and common purpose in the Gospel that there's a knitting of their souls and there is a loving one another as their very own souls that they're actually two bodies with a single spirit. There's such a dynamic passion for the Gospel shared that the bond of love goes very deep. And it did with Jonathan and David. They covenanted together. And in doing this, Jonathan recognized that David was to be king. And he gave up his garments and his weapons to David. In verse 4, it says, Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David, and his armor, and even his sword, and his bow, and his belt. You see this giving from Jonathan to David, and Michael Haldman writing about this, says that Jonathan gave David his clothes and his military garb. It's important to note this, brothers and sisters, this wasn't like just letting his friend borrow his sweatshirt if they're hanging out together over at each other's house. This is something so much more significant and meaningful. The significance of this gift, Haldman says, was that Jonathan recognized that David would one day be king over Israel. And please remember this, brothers and sisters, as Saul said in 1 Samuel chapter 20, if that's true, Jonathan's not to become king. So Jonathan's fully aware of what's taking place here, and yet he's recognizing, as the Lord had said to Saul, his father, that the Lord is taking the kingdom away from you and giving it to one better than you, a man after my own heart. And Jonathan recognized that to be David. And in loyalty to the Lord, he willingly submits to the reality of his future not entailing him being king, and he submits himself to God's purpose and God's plan. And Michael Halman writes, Jonathan submitted to God's will and sacrificed his own right to the throne. 
rather than being envious or jealous like his father was, which turned him into a true enemy. Jonathan was a true friend. And and note one of the characteristics of true friendship between two brothers in the Lord. There is an alignment together with God's will. David was anointed king by the prophet Samuel. And Jonathan, who would have been king, comes underneath of that will of God and aligns himself with David, even at great personal cost to himself. Amos 3 verse 3 says, Can two walk together unless they be agreed? One of the important dynamics of true biblical friendship is that you be agreed with one another in the will of God and in the purpose of God, and you allow your hearts to bond together as you both pursue the mission of God. The mission of God is greater than even a friendship. But as we serve the mission of God, the Lord kindly brings true friends, brothers and sisters along our side to walk out the Christian life together. And there's special friendships like the friendship that David and Jonathan shared that are an inspiration to us. But it begins with an agreement in the truth. It begins with an alignment together and a submitting mutually to God's will above our own. If you want to know a contrast between Saul's path and Jonathan, his son's path, Jonathan submitted to the will of God and Saul was committed to his own way. And that clash was irreconcilable and led Saul to become greater and greater an enemy of not only King David, but also, more importantly, an enemy of God. Whereas Jonathan submitted himself to God's plan and yoked his heart together with God's choice of the true king from the tribe of Judah. There was sacrifice for each other. You see that there's, in Jonathan, true friendship. True friendship gives. It gives. And let that mark us, brothers and sisters. I was thinking by way of application to us, let us likewise give and not expect in return even necessarily. A true friend gives and does not live expecting to get in return. In 1 Samuel 19, verse 1, in the passage I read first, Saul spoke to Jonathan. This is after this time. And he said to all the servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. So there's this private delight that Jonathan takes in David. Even as he's seen David's success. And he hears the same song that David is slain his tens of thousands and Saul his thousands. You know, at least Saul was mentioned in the song. Jonathan's not even mentioned there at all, and yet he was on the battlefield. But he's not sung at all, and yet his heart delights in David. And you just see this beautiful, selfless imagery of Jonathan that I hope just inspires you and I. But in verses 4-7, through if you read God's Word with me in, in 19, it says, And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. You see right there in verse 4 that as the public declaration of Saul's intention to kill David is mentioned, Jonathan courageously steps up and honorably honoring his father, but also coming against his father's will, speaks well of David, not just privately, but publicly, to Saul. Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. Saul's jealousy had blinded him to the good that David had done for him. That's what sin will do. It will blind you to the good that others have done for you. And Jonathan, because his heart was clean and pure, remembered what David did against the Philistines and against Goliath on behalf of the people of Israel and the victory he won that day. 
It says in verse 5, For he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine, and the Lord worked a great salvation for all of Israel. And he's saying, Oh, Father, you saw it. And you rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? So he's serving as this peacemaker. He's publicly loyal to both his father, but also simultaneously to David. And he's saw, listen to the voice of Jonathan. It's, it's so moving here. But this actually restores David to the household. Saul swore as he remembered the goodness of David to him through his son Jonathan, the true friend of David. As the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul and he was in his presence as before. You see this courageous young man on the battlefield, covenanting together with David, delighting in David privately, but also willing to stick his neck out publicly as well to honor and defend David and to call to mind the goodness that David had done to his father. And it persuades Saul. And of course, look at verse 9. Verse 8. And there was war again. And David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow so that they fled before him. And then verse 9, Saul would not repent. And then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in the house with his spear in his hand. And David was playing the lyre. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with a spear, and he, but he eluded Saul. So that he struck the spear into the wall. Stuck the spear into the wall. And David fled and escaped that night. So the hatred returns. The needing to flee returns. But the friendship of Jonathan is a constant in the life of David. And David's was likewise a constant in the life of Jonathan. As we proceed forward in the timeline with the text we just read in chapter 20, if you look in verses 8 and 9 together with me, the Word of God says, Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, this is David speaking, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, far be it from you. You see this, he just looks at his friend and trusts his friend and and sees that no, there is no guilt in you, my friend. And then he also pledges, To David, if I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? So Jonathan, you see him, he keeps taking initiative with the making of promises to David in covenant. Jonathan reassures David, there's no guilt in you. And if there's anything wrong with my father towards you, I'll come and tell you if I know about it. There's this reassurance, this fresh promise. He Also, in verse 13, if you look at verse 13 together with me, in the Word, but should it please my Father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. There's a a spirit of protecting David, looking out for David, and not just looking out for himself. It's crazy. If you look in uh, verse 14, He actually goes on to say, if I'm still alive, Jonathan's saying to David, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant. This is a pledge, a bond, typically made a bond in blood. This is promise. And he says, may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And he does this again. He recovenants with David to make sure that David knows that, listen, I am loyal to God and I am also loyal to you as the true king. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Essentially, he's speaking here, though I am not worthy of your love because I'm from the house of Saul, and my father is doing so much harm potentially to you. Do not remove your love from me and my household 
when God makes you king. David, I'm on your side. I'm for you. And I'm more importantly, I'm on God's side. And that's why I'm on your side. And the Lord is witness to this. They keep saying this expression throughout chapter 20. It's this real beautiful expression. You see it repeated again and again. You see in the last verse, in verse 42, Jonathan said to David, Go in peace because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed. And Jonathan went into the city. This aspect of the Lord shall be between me and you. This was a a fruit of the covenant. They both knew as they were promising to one another pledges of friendship. That I'm going to act this way towards you. And you are going to act this way toward me. And they bonded together in that way. They also recognized that they weren't just speaking words. God was witnessing what they were saying to one another. And the Lord was witness between the both of them. And also a witness that if they do not fulfill that promise, the Lord would also judge them for it. And Jonathan is asking David to pledge that he would show favor to him and to his household forever. The Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. Now please note here the word offspring. This is talking about future generations as well. And we know When we hear the word offspring, our ears should perk up when we're reading the Old Testament because the promise and the promised one is spoken of as the offspring of the woman, the seed of the woman or the offspring of the woman, the offspring of Abraham. And through the offspring of Abraham, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And when Jonathan is pledging his allegiance to David and his offspring. He's pledging his allegiance to Christ. And he's saying, remember me long after this moment. Covenant together with me. And let me be assured that even when everything goes bad, you're going to keep your steadfast love toward me. And And David promised. It reminded me of the the wish and the prayer of the thief on the cross next to Jesus. Oh Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly, you will be with me today in paradise. Jesus promised his steadfast love to this unworthy sinner who looked to him and Believed. And then upon believing in Christ, he received this promise that even though he was a wicked sinner dying on the cross, deservingly for his sin, Christ was up there shedding his blood, as John talked to us about during communion, and his body was being broken precisely so that that sinner might trust in him. David's offspring. And now be on the receiving end of God's steadfast love and covenant love forever and ever. See in this beautiful section here as Jonathan's pledging his commitment to David and his offspring. And David is likewise committing the allegiance of himself as well as his offspring to Jonathan and his household. See in there the beauty of the new covenant of Christ taking up the cup and saying, this is my body. It's given for you. This is the blood of my covenant given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Steadfast love is pledged in chapter 20 between Jonathan and David. And not just to Jonathan and David, but also to their offspring forever. And it's a beautiful Gospel connection. A a sighting of Christ for as we dig deep into and mine out the Scriptures, we can see Him everywhere. And I want to encourage us all to dig deep and remember the sightings of Christ that we enjoy even as we look at the Old Testament. The Lord is witness to my promise, David. 
Jonathan's saying. And he will avenge if I don't keep it. So I'm going to be faithful to you, David. And then in verse 30 through 34, he publicly defends David again at the risk of his own life when he's sitting at the table with his father Saul. And he he gets a spear hurled at him. Not only is he is insulted, he insulted, but his own mom is insulted as well. As Saul rages because he lost his opportunity to kill David. But Jonathan publicly defends David with Abner right there at the table. And, and an application there, brothers and sisters, is true friendship costs. It costs. And we want to be willing to pay that cost. His father hurls a spear at him. And you know what the text says? He was angered and he was grieved for David. What a man. What a friend. Because Saul, his father, disgraced David, his friend. Your dad just hurled a spear at you and you're thinking about your friend. This gives you the the idea of, of what this man's made of. And Jonathan is such an inspiration. And all of us should just take note of just the wonderful man of God that he is and take heart. Well, as we read, Saul was intending to kill David again. And the boy had to go search for the arrows beyond the mark, which signaled to David, my dad does want to kill you, David. You were right. And as they part, you look in verse 41. David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground about three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another. David weeping the most. True friendship is marked by true, righteous, and holy affection. These two men's men warriors are weeping at the reality of them needing to part ways. Jonathan made sure David could go in peace. And yet he remained behind in loyalty to God's plan being carried out still yet in his father's throne to play out. So he plays his part as a faithful son honoring his father and being a faithful soldier in Israel and yet also maintains his covenant with David at the same time. What an honorable and godly young man. And it's most likely about three years after this, if you look in 1 Samuel chapter 23 together, there's this beautiful section beginning in verse 15. Read with me if you will. This is powerful. Again, now David's been fleeing from Saul for about three years. This is about a year before. This is 10-11 BC, 10-10 BC. David and Jonathan are both killed on the field of battle. But this is a year before it happens. David is in exile. And verse 15 says, David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horesh. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to, and rose and went to David at Horesh. And look at this phrase. And strengthened his hand in God. You want a good definition of what true biblical friendship looks like, commit yourself to those words right there. Be committed to your brothers and sisters in Christ in your local church to strengthen their hand in God. Do everything you can in care group and in church fellowship life to strengthen your brothers and sisters in God. And again, brothers and sisters, Do this without looking for expectation in return. Do this because 
it pleases the Lord. And look at what he says to his friend in exile. He said to him, David, do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. He reassures him. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul my father knows this. And look again. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horesh. And Jonathan went home. This may have in fact been the very last words that David actually got to Jonathan. This side of heaven. And look at what those words look like. Do not fear. You're going to be king. I'm going to recovenant before the Lord to you that I'm going to be faithful to you. And I've come out and broken from the camp of my father that's pursuing you to come privately to see you in the wilderness for the purpose of strengthening your hand in God, my friend. Oh, mm. oh Lord. Make us these kind of friends, these kinds of Christian friends. It's no wonder, and this is the last text I'm going to look at in terms of First and Second Samuel. If you look at Second Samuel one, faithful Jonathan fighting by his father's side right up to the very end is cut down. And David in 2 Samuel 1 is lamenting both Saul and Jonathan's loss. Saul and Jonathan, verse 23, Beloved and lovely, in life and in death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. Oh, you daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. And then look at this. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Look at this description of Jonathan. And let's strive, friends in Christ Community Church, to have this type of covenant bond and friendship with one another. Very pleasant have you been to me. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. The bond between these two covenant brothers ran so deep that David's saying, not even with my wives, have I ever experienced the type of loyalty and commitment and friendship? If you remember, the contrast is with uh, Jonathan's sister, Michal, who later on ends up mocking David for worshiping the Lord. He didn't feel the same kinship in the Lord that he felt with mighty Jonathan. And the, the, the union of their two souls in relation to the mission of God and building the kingdom of God together. And so he laments the loss of Jonathan who appropriately dies on the battlefield. No doubt defending his father, the king, to the last. That is worthy of a lament. Jonathan was a friend that stuck closer than any of David's brothers. And that phrase, that expression in 2 Samuel 1.26, very pleasant have you been to me. Brothers and sisters, I, I, just, I think of just this Facebook world today where friends and friending and unfriending happen so flippantly and the bonds of who we will call a friend and who we will allow in to be friends and, and the bonds that are so quickly broken in ties of friendship at the, the easiest inconvenience and I think, oh Lord, and, and just the, the world of social media where so much out there is so unpleasant and people are often just giving voice to arrogance of opinions and, and all kinds of just, oh, what a contrast 
And what a witness we can make for Christ when before unbelievers and before our brothers and sisters in church, they can say of us, very pleasant has He been to me. Very pleasant has she been to me. When we strive by God's grace to be these type of men and women for the glory of God, we will have this type of wonderful effect in the lives of God's people. We will strengthen their hearts in the service to Christ. And we will be a great blessing. How important it is for us to be motivated and moved by the example of Jonathan and David and their covenant friendship together. I'm going to try to get through a few just words of application quickly. I'm going to be mentioning a bunch of Scriptures. Take them down as fast as you can, and then we'll wrap up in a few minutes. First thing I want to mention is true friendship gives. Shannon and I have kind of adopted a maxim in our own souls and we repeat it to each other often. And I hope this blesses you. We take it from this. Brothers and sisters, be focused on being the best friend you can be to other people. Rather than focusing on who is or who isn't pursuing you for friendship. I realize that orientation can be one way or the other with us often. And if we focus our lives on who's pursuing me, who's drawing close to me, it can often be a discouraging accent. But when we focus on being the very best friend we can be to other people, there's something so wonderful and hope-giving about that. Because when you look in the world, so, it's so rare to have true friendship like this. And if any of us can be that kind of a blessing into the lives of others, it will be a shining light in this dark world when others recognize it is so pleasant to be around Him. It is so pleasant to be around her. I'm moved. I'm motivated. I want to be like that for the glory of God. I love... The Word of God which says, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Jonathan sharpened David. He strengthened David for the spiritual fight. He encouraged him in the pursuit of the throne. Let us be brothers and sisters who likewise do that. Let us encourage them in Christ. True friendship gives, and true friendship sharpens. By way of advice, draw close to those who sharpen you. We could tend to think, oh man, I just want to have friendship that just kind of happens. It just falls into this knitting of souls that just happens. And occasionally that will happen. And what a wonderful gift that is. But if you look even at David and Jonathan's friendship, there was a covenanting and a recovenanting and a recovenanting together. There was work involved with that friendship. And we, we tend to think friendship just, should just fall into our laps and just be easy and have it to be easy to come by. No, Scripture gives us admonitions and commands Walk with the wise and you will grow wise. But a companion of fools suffers harm. Proverbs 13.24 1 Corinthians 15.33 Especially to young people, but not just to the young, to all of us. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Scripture is very clear. You become like who you hang with. If you walk with the wise, you'll grow wise. If you hang out with an angry person, you'll become angry. If you, if you start to become friends with someone who's bloodthirsty, you will also cast in your lot with them as Proverbs exhorts. Don't do that, my son. Gather around you friends that sharpen you in God. Search them out. Even if they're not your own age and they're not your peers, draw near to other men, other women that are going to strengthen you in the Lord your God. And who are going to challenge you and sharpen you. And you'll find that you'll have sweet kinship there in relation to the kingdom. Another word of advice in relation to friendship for us, Christ community. 
You can't control who might betray you in the future. But I want to exhort all of us to this. Don't stop entrusting your heart to those whom God brings around you. Simply because there's a possibility that that person could be the next one to betray you. Yes, that could happen. Jesus Himself, as He's washing the disciples' feet, is down washing Judas' feet, knowing, unlike us, we don't know who betrays us. Jesus knew, washed His feet anyway. Judas comes up and betrays Him with a kiss. How about that dagger right before you go to the cross? Friend, do what you came for. You're taking my heart right now, but that was part of the sufferings of Christ. He had the twelve, but he also had the three, Peter, James, and John, drawing especially close with them. Every single one of them, including Peter, including James and John, all fled and deserted him in his greatest hour of need. And yet you see him coming to them in John 21, and there's just this love and this rapport, and Judas is now gone, but he's baking breakfast for them on the beach and then telling them about his love for them, forgiving Peter for the three times he he denied him, reinstating him three times to prove to Peter, you may not have been faithful to me, but... I'm always faithful to you. See my hands? See my feet? Don't stop going to strengthen others' hearts in God even if they don't come to you and do the same. We don't obey God for what we can get in response. We just obey God and give our hearts and pour ourselves out like a drink offering and spend ourselves for the kingdom of God. And when we get done, we say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. We're not looking for what we can get. A true Christian and a true friend gives and gives willingly and doesn't always have his eye or her eye on, hey, what's coming to me? What's coming to me? By way of practical application, let's press into life and fellowship and hospitality and, and reach out to people. But if any of you here are newer and you're just feeling like, oh man, I just feel like people don't reach out to me. Like, listen, friend, I just want to encourage you just as I encourage my own soul. Reach out to others. Invite them into your home. Start to become the friend that you long to have. And God will show you in His kindness that there are those other sisters out there and brothers out there that He's going to yoke your heart with with the friendship that you desire, but don't cast in the towel and say, nobody's reaching out to me at this church. And you know, I'm just going to kind of pull back and become distant. That's exactly what the enemy wants you to do. Don't do that. No, be the friend that you long to have, even if it never comes to you. Jonathan essentially said to David, even when things go bad, you can count on my friendship. There was a loyalty, not a loyalty to a fault, but a loyalty that he had to his father that he never gave up on. Even though he disagreed with him and stood against him publicly over what he was doing unjustly to David, he stood there fighting and lost his life on the same mountain on the battlefield. And he was loyal to David. He honored his father to the end. And he honored his friend. All of that was not because ultimately he was loyal to his father or loyal to his friend. It was Jonathan's loyalty to God and to his word that made him this kind of man and this kind of friend. Proverbs 11.25 says, Whoever refreshes others will himself be refreshed. Let's make it our ambition to refresh others. Uh, 
Who has God knit your heart to? Well, brothers and sisters, we've already, you know, in, in coming to church and, and committing to our church like many of you have already, God's already knit our hearts together in our local church. And we're not all going to have David and Jonathan like friendships, but we are knit together by the Holy Spirit. We're being built together as spiritual stones. A few words of advice here. Knit your heart to those with whom you have common cause in the Gospel. Love as your own soul those with whom you share close fellowship in Christ. Commit to do good in public and in private to those with whom you are bonded, even though it comes with a cost. Open your heart and entrust yourself to those who are loyal to Christ, even after having been burned in the past. Strengthen and sharpen those with whom God has knitted you together with. And finally, be pleasant to people. Be pleasant. So much can be accomplished just by being kind and showing a kind expression from across the room if you can't even share a word. And Charles Spurgeon once said, I love a man who bears a countenance and invites me to make him my friend. I want to be that kind of man that when someone sees me from a distance, they feel like, I think that, I think that might be a safe place right there. I think that might be a safe place I can open my heart to. That's the kind of man I want to be. I, I'm, and I'm so aware as I come in with just all the battles of my own indwelling sin and the struggles and burdens of the week, and I can be so focused and be in task mode that my countenance perhaps may not be inviting those to become my friend because I'm just wearing a countenance that isn't making it obvious to the world that, hey, Christ is risen from the dead. I'm saved. There's a lot of challenges going on in my life and in the world, but hey, listen, I'm forgiven and I'm heading for heaven. Oh, CB, come on, wake up and smile a little bit and invite those who don't even know you yet to become your friend because God has much good yet to do through you to bless other people's souls. And same goes to you as well, brothers and sisters. I made a commitment years ago when it comes to care group. Go to care group thinking, how can I be used tonight to uplift and encourage my brothers and sisters in Christ? In other words, practically, God, I'm going tonight with the goal of building up somebody here. I'm not going because I even feel like it necessarily. I, I just, I, even when it's cold out in the wintertime, I'm not excited about getting back in the car at night and going out to care group. But I do it because Scripture commands me to. The fellowship of the saints, the communion of the saints is a command in Hebrews. Do not give up meeting together as is the habit of some, but all, some, but all the more as you see the day approaching, we are to encourage one another daily. I do that because of a conviction from Scripture, but I go and I want to think, how might God use me to refresh somebody's soul here tonight? And it injects me with a sense of purpose. I'm not just going to care group. I'm going to light somebody up if I can for Jesus. Holy Spirit, fill me up. I don't have the power. I don't have the energy. I'm practically falling asleep at the wheel to go, but I'm going. And I'm going to go because I want to be a blessing to you. I am in commitment in knitting of our souls together in this local church. And I'm going to go all in. I'm not going to play it safe. I'm going to go in. I'm going to risk loving this new person. Yeah, you know what? Ten years from now, they might betray me. Or they might betray somebody else. But you know what? To the glory of God, we open ourselves up again and again and again. And we entrust ourselves to new friends, and to new faces. And we continue to invest into friendships that we've had for years and years, but we don't grow stagnant. We welcome in more so that we might be a blessing to them also. We're not driven by fear in these things, but faith in God to be the best friend 
we can be for the glory of God. Let me just share this closing illustration. I know it's been a longer message. I hope it's been helpful to you. It really moves me. In, in the months leading up to my wedding, this is a young woman named Courtney Reisig. In the months leading up to my wedding, I had a recurring dream. It was a nightmare, really. While I had my fair share of dreams about my dress not fitting or forgetting to complete some vital detail, the one that haunted me was much darker. I regularly dreamed that something would happen to my fiancé. I would wake up haunted by the thought that the man I love so deeply would either die tragically or leave me for someone else. As I shared my fears with a dear friend who had been married longer than I had, she spoke these encouraging words. Every time you open your heart to love like you are now doing, you open your heart to more hurt and pain. Your heart is more vulnerable, but the love is worth it. Fast forward four years, and I'm now the mother of twin boys. Like many other expecting and new moms, I struggle with nagging fear that something tragic will happen to my babies. And on my most frightening days, I'm reminded of those wise words from my friend, to love is to be vulnerable. This isn't a new concept. C.S. Lewis understood it well in The Four Loves. He writes this. Listen to this quote carefully. Track with this with me. There is no safe investment. To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one. Not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your own selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken, your heart. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. It's C.S. Lewis from The Four Loves. And Courtney Reisick says this in closing. If we only choose to love in situations free from vulnerability, we'd never love at all. Nowhere do we see this more clearly than at Calvary. There, the God who is love became vulnerable for sinners like you and me. He experienced the greatest pain imaginable. Thank you, Jesus. The death of His only Son so that we could be made right with Him. A mother can love through the difficult months of pregnancy and the agonizing hours of labor because she knows at the end of the pain comes the baby she loves so deeply. So also, Christ loved through the darkest moments of the cross because He knew at the end He'd be glorified and His people would be redeemed. He knew the joy that awaited if He loved to the end. Christians can love with the same freedom. While there's no promise of cost-free love, I love that expression, we know the deeper purpose behind it all. Our hearts laid bare to vulnerability is not the end of the story. John 15.13 Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And brothers and sisters, in doing so, Christ has secured, listen carefully, for all of you who long for true friendship but feel in this fallen world that it always somehow falls short, Christ has secured for you in laying down His life for you as His friend an eternal future in the new heavens and new earth. A world where there will only be perfect friendship and perfect love.
That's our future. So we can give of ourselves now, willingly and openly, and may God give us grace to do so. Join me in prayer. Almighty God, we thank You so much for these inspiring words speaking about Jonathan and David, but Lord, as we see their covenant love between one another as brothers and and we're inspired by the many applications rich for our own light. We ask You, Holy Spirit, to give us power to be these kind of friends. Help us, Lord, to be true biblical friends to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, may it be said at the end of our lives that, oh, it was so pleasant to have Him to have her in my life. Almighty God, I pray that You would make us those men and women. Help us to shine like a bright light showing Christ's self-giving love to this dark world. And Jesus, we thank You for calling us friends and for laying down Your life for us and securing for us an eternal future where there will only be perfect friendship, and perfect love. I can't wait to get there and be there with you and see you, our best of friends, face to face. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Love you, Christ community. Have a wonderful, wonderful week.